Well, as you'll have gathered by now, as uh, Vanessa mentioned, we are going through in our sermon series at the moment, looking at what Christians believe and why we believe it. We're basing it in the words of one of the early doctrinal statements of the early church. It's called the Nicene Creed. It was a creed, a set of beliefs that was agreed by a council of the early church that met at a place called Nicaea, hence the word Nicene Creed. And uh, Jess mentioned uh, nativity plays earlier on. I think it is my favorite school nativity play story. You know that occasion when children get up in tea towels and all sorts of things, and it's just a remarkable occasion, a sort of mangling of Christian truth uh, that goes on every December in primary schools all over the UK. Um, Hands up if you were, were Mary. Come on, I know we've got some Marys. Josephs, third shepherd, <laughs> second wise men, crowd. Yeah, well my favourite story is of um, a sort of a... Um, improvisation that went on in uh, a nativity play. Um, Joseph arrives at the door of the inn, knocks on the door of the inn and says to the innkeeper, please can we have a room? Uh, The innkeeper looks at Joseph and says, I'm sorry but we're full. Joseph replies, but my wife Mary is pregnant. The child innkeeper looks back at the child Joseph and says, well that's not my fault. The child Joseph replies, it's not my fault either. (laughs) And actually that exchange is behind one of the central and most important and controversial statements and beliefs in the Christian faith. A belief, again, that is unique to Christianity, the virgin birth. And I want to look this morning at why it's important, why it matters so much, and what difference it makes to our faith and how, therefore, we think about God and how we think about ourselves. The letter to the Galatian church that Fiona read for us a few moments ago is a letter that was written to people that were like many of us in this church building this morning. The Galatian church was a church full of people with Celtic tendencies. So whether you have Irish or Welsh, like me, or Scottish or Cornish or Breton blood somewhere in your history, there's something of your DNA that Paul is addressing when he writes to the church in Galatia. The name has its origins in settlers who came from Gaul Asterix the Gaul in northern France, two or three centuries BC, they moved into this area of what we now call northern Turkey, and it became known as Galatia because that was where the Gauls settled. So this is a Celtic church. This is a letter written to a Celtic church that shared many of the character traits that you and I share. And it's striking, therefore, that in Paul's letter to the church at Galatians, a letter written to a Celtic church, one of the things that he focuses on is the dangers of legalism. Now, if we're honest, if you look back through the church history in Scotland, in Wales, in Ireland, haven't got a clue about Cornwall or Brittany, but legalism 
has reared its head again and again and again. It has different forms, whether it's in Catholicism or Protestantism or even Pentecostalism in the Celtic Church. People throughout the history of the Celtic Church experience God in a new way. So it might be the Hebridean revival. It might be the Welsh revival. They experience something of the presence of God as the Holy Spirit moves upon them. But very quickly, they move back into the old ways of doing things. Very quickly, they move back into rules and regulations and religion. It's safer there. It's more reassuring there. Where the Spirit is working is more unpredictable. It's more threatening. It's more uncomfortable. And so there's something in the Celtic psyche, and we have to be honest about this, that is retreated over thousands of years of church history back into religion and back into rules and back into regulation about doing the right thing in the right way at the right time with the right people and making sure that people who are not doing the right thing in the right way at the right, with the right people at the right time know that they are definitely not doing the right thing in the right way with the right people at the right time. The tragedy is, however, that legalism is spiritually oppressive. Legalism kills spiritual life. Legalism chokes grace. Legalism brings about guilt and condemnation. And you don't have to read very far back into the history of the Celtic church to find examples where that's happened. It had happened in this particular area of northern Turkey too. A church that had begun so well that it embraced the message of grace had started to go back to religion. Many of its members were from a Jewish background. But then some Jewish Christians had arrived from Jerusalem. They'd started to teach that in order to be a real Christian, i.e. a Christian like them, and that's had different forms over the years, whether it be Baptist or Episcopalian or Pentecostal, to be a real Christian, you have to be like me, because I'm like Jesus, is the shorthand version. To be a real Christian, these Jewish Christians said, you had to observe the Old Testament law and follow Jewish practices. And again, we have to be honest and say there's something about this Celtic psyche that legalism appeals to. So Paul begins this letter warning the Galatian church, chapter 1 and verse 6, you are deserting the gospel of grace, he says to them. Chapter 2 and verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's even stronger by the time he gets to chapter 3 and verses 1 to 4. You foolish Galatians, he says, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just the one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of law or by believing what you heard? And he goes to contrast two things in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. In chapter 3, he's asking one question. Does God do miracles amongst you because you have obeyed the law? And in chapter 4, he's saying, have you received the Holy Spirit by how well you've kept the Jewish law or by your faith in Jesus Christ. 
In chapter 3, he contrasts faith versus the law. In chapter 4, he contrasts the spirit versus the law. Now, the illustration that he begins chapter 4 with is one that would have been very familiar to the people who were listening to Paul's letter being read out in these churches in Galatia in northern Turkey. But in our world, in 21st century Britain, it's an example, an illustration that we find more difficult to relate to. Bless you, because it's a church and we're allowed to say that. Um, in Roman and Greek and Jewish society, a man, and it was only a man, only came of age at a certain age in that particular culture or society. It might have been 14, it might have been 18, it might have been 21. It differed from society and context and culture to each other. In fact, in Roman society, it was the father of the boy who decided how old that boy would be before they came of age. We used to have something similar in our society. When you were, were 21, we used to talk about people coming of age, and um, your 21st birthday was a huge thing about 20, 30 years ago. That was when you could learn to drive. That was when you could vote in an election. That was when you could get married of your own accord. Now, the reality is, in our society now, that 21 thing has gone. And so, as the father of two teenage boys, I can tell you that every birthday from 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19 is now significant, has to be celebrated in a particular and special way. Oh, for the days of when it was just one, and being 21. Until you reach this age that your father in Roman culture and society specified for you, you were said to be in the age of minority. You were a minor. As far as the law was concerned, you were not responsible for your own actions. You were said to be in the age of minority. And when you reached uh, that age, you became legally responsible for your actions. At the same time, if you were born into a family with wealth and with property, you would then inherit, at the age at which you came of age, you would then inherit the property that had been entrusted to somebody else on your behalf. It was common in Roman society, Greek society, for a guardian or trustee, even if you had a father, a guardian or a trustee would be appointed to look after you. A guardian to care for you, but a trustee to look after your property. A guardian would direct you, they'd educate you, they'd make sure that you live life and were brought up in the right way. A trustee would look after your property, your investments, your the villa that would put, had been put aside for you, or whatever. That's the background to the context that Paul is writing about in Galatians chapter 4. Listen to his words. What I am saying, he says, is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees, 
until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that before the coming of Jesus, the Jewish people were in the age of minority. They were not responsible for their actions. They were under the law, The law had been given to them as a guardian and trustee to direct them in the way that they should live, to look after and guarantee their inheritance, but they weren't responsible for their actions. But, Paul says, now something has fundamentally changed. Writing to this church has been influenced by these Jewish Christians Paul says, now, with the coming of Jesus, with the birth of Jesus, something has fundamentally changed. For thousands of years, they had been in the age of minority. But now, verse 4, when the time had fully come, when the time set by the Father had arrived, Now they were in the age of majority. Now they were responsible for their actions. Now something fundamentally different, seismic, cosmic, literally, had changed in the nature of God to humanity and humanity to God. So, Paul writes, verse 4, When the set time had fully come, the time appointed by the Father... When the set time had fully come, God sent Jesus his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. We had a debate in the vestry with Fiona as to what version she should read. And I said, please could you read the slightly masculine version? We have sort of inclusive versions, and that's really, really good and often really, really helpful. The downside of even the version that I have in front of me says that you become a child of God. That's helpful, particularly for those of us who are female. I'm not. But it includes people. What it takes away and loses, however, is that under Jewish law, under Greek law, under Roman law, It was the son who received the inheritance. And what Paul is using here is a legal argument. You have now become inheritors of all that the Father has for you. Your legal status before God has changed because you have moved from the age of minority to the age of majority. Once you were no longer responsible for your actions, now you are responsible for your actions Everything has changed, and the thing that has changed it is because God has sent Jesus, his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And that's the first reason why the virgin birth is so important. The virgin birth, the belief that God, by his Holy Spirit, came to Mary, overshadowed Mary, as it's described in Matthew and Luke's Gospel, and that God himself is involved in the conception of Jesus, not Joseph, 
is important for this first reason. Because it signifies that something fundamental has changed. That as God unites himself with a woman, something cosmic, seismic happens. God becomes a human. God's son becomes a child. Firstly, in order that we might become the children of God. Sometimes that phrase is banded around, that we're all God's children. Biblically, that is not the understanding of the Old or New Testament. All of us as human beings bear the image of God. All of us as human beings have God's spirit within us that gives us life in that sense. But in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's children is a label that is referred to God's people. In the Old Testament, it's the Jewish people. In the New Testament, it's those who believe in Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. You and I, if we're Christians, have become God's child. Something has fundamentally changed, not just because of what happened on a cross, but because of what happened 33 at least years before in Nazareth, and then because of what occurred nine months later in Bethlehem, and then what occurred 33 years later on a cross outside Jerusalem. You and I have become the children of God. Something has changed in the nature of our relationship to God. Before, Paul says, we were minors under the guardianship and trusteeship of the law, but now we're adopted into God's family. Many of the staff were away this week at a conference down at the Royal Albert Hall, and one of the speakers that we heard this week was Father Raniero Cantamalesa, who is the preacher to the papal household. Every uh, week he stands and preaches to the Pope. You thought you were intimidating as a congregation. Imagine that. There was a lovely phrase that he used this week to describe this change in our relationship with God. He referred to it as Christianity's great novelty. Christianity's great novelty. And the novelty is this, that in the person of Jesus Christ, God has served us. Now that is unique to Christianity. Every other world faith, every other religion speaks about human beings serving God. Being religious, doing good things, praying, going to the right places and worshipping in order to earn God's approval and love. Christianity is the only religion that flips that completely on its head. And rather than us serving God in the person of Jesus Christ, we see God serving us. Christianity's great novelty. God serves us. Secondly, why is the virgin birth so important? It proclaims the unique character of Jesus. It declares that this is no ordinary baby. This is God in action. It demonstrates the operation of the supernatural in the incarnation. This is God at work. God is making a statement here. 
God is involved in his coming into the world. Donald MacLeod was the professor of the Free Church uh, here in Edinburgh. Not many people get to quote the preacher to the papal household and the professor of the Free Church of Scotland in the same talk. That is quite a span. But Donald MacLeod put it this way. The virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas, and none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find it offensive, there is no point proceeding further. God is saying that something is occurring here that is supernatural that is beyond our understanding and beyond and in our world. God, as it were, is coming by supernatural power to indicate that a supernatural event is occurring. This is a supernatural conception. It's not an immaculate conception. That's a different belief that says Mary was without sin, and continued to be without sin for the whole of her life. That's a, a Roman Catholic belief. Protestants don't believe in the Immaculate Conception, but the conception that we believe in may not be Immaculate, but it's still pretty good. <laughs> because it's saying that God himself has come and overshadowed Mary. This is no ordinary birth of no ordinary baby, but significantly, and next, the most and um, the next meaning, meaningful illustration and impact of the virgin birth is that it may be a supernatural conception, but it is a very human birth. And this is the tension behind the virgin birth. It's a supernatural conception, but it's a very human birth. Because God enters fully into the human experience. You see, God doesn't become a baby after Jesus is born. As it were, the divine doesn't enter Jesus in the stable at Bethlehem. The divine enters Mary at the conception, nine months before. So Jesus, God, knows what it is to be in the womb. You don't get much more human than that. Jesus, God, knows what it's like to be a fetus. Jesus, God, knows what it's like to be nurtured in his mother's womb. Jesus, God, knows what it's like as he's born, and you can't get much more human than that, to be frail and fragile, and weak, and vulnerable. Jesus, as a baby, knows what it's like not to be able to feed himself. The Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the one who was there at the beginning of creation, the one through whom all things were made, we say in the Creed, now knows what it is not to be able to walk, not to be able to feed himself, not to be able to wipe his nose. He knows what it is, if you like, to put on a nappy 
but that nappy has to be put on him by somebody else. You can't get more human than this, and yet you can't get more divine than this. This is a supernatural conception, but a very human birth. And what difference does that make? It means that as Jesus lives his life as a toddler, Jesus lives his life as a four-year-old, a five-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old, a teenager. Jesus knows what it is to live a fully human life. There is nothing that you or I will ever face or experience that Jesus has not faced or experienced. Okay, he never drove a car. He never had a mobile phone. But the real things of life, the things that you and I face every day, the temptations, the struggles, the stresses, Jesus knows what it feels like to feel thirsty, to feel hungry, to feel lonely, to feel friendship, to feel rejected. Jesus lived a fully human life. Now, in the early church, there were all sorts of ideas and theories around as people tried to get their heads around it. You see, here's God. He, be, he becomes a human being. He, he's there in Jesus for 33 years, but then he goes back into heaven at the ascension, not from Carlton Hill, but from somewhere else. And the early church now has to try and figure out what had happened. How could God be in Jesus and yet still be in heaven? How could God, who is in heaven, be in Jesus, be killed on the cross? How could God, who is in heaven, be in Jesus, be on the cross and now go back into heaven, but after the day of Pentecost, now be in each of them? So basically, you can sum up 400 years of church history as how could God be up there, down here, in you, in him, how? That's it. That's 400 years of church history. How could God be up there, down here, in him, in me, at the same time? I tried to write that in an essay. It didn't get very many marks uh, when I was learning to be a vicar. But that, in essence, is 400 years of church history. And there were all sorts of strange ideas with all sorts of strange names that people came up with to try and explain how could God be fully human and fully God and yet be in heaven and yet be in me and yet be on the cross how could that happen and they got funny names names like Ebionism the idea that Jesus was a human but only a human that was divinely chosen then there was something called deceitism that Jesus only seemed human but he wasn't really then there was this idea around Gnosticism that the this thing called the divine Christ united with the human Jesus, but only for a fixed period of time. This idea had Jesus living a fully normal human life. He was a, a normal human life up to the age of about 30. The baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. The divine Christ enters into Jesus at that point. For three years, the divine Christ and the human Jesus are united. And then just before the crucifixion, because God can't die, the divine Christ goes back into heaven and it's just the human Jesus that dies on the cross. Then there was 
Arianism put forward by a man called Arius, who said that Jesus was created by God. There was a time when he was not, Arius said. And if you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses or Christadelphians, they believe the same thing. Against all these ideas, which are all honest ideas, trying to understand how God could be up there, down here, in Jesus, in me, at the same time, the early church fathers concluded with these words at the Council of Nicaea. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through whom all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. Words that Christians say every single week. Words that we say in our nine o'clock service every single week. And each word and each phrase is important. Because each word and each phrase was fought over, was debated over, was discussed, was nuanced. Over 200 years of church history, And each phrase and each word had and has a deep theological meaning. And we change them and we change our beliefs and doctrine, therefore, at our peril. Because if we change these words, we are seeking to redefine what Christianity is. Because in redefining who Jesus is, we're seeking to redefine who God is and how he relates to humanity. Now, in the end, it's a mystery. The virgin birth is a mystery. God is a mystery. He is bigger than creeds or doctrine. They are simply human ways, human words, to try and put in a way, as as limited as our vocabulary is, how we understand God. But at the end of the day, the creed proclaims a supernatural God working supernaturally, becoming fully human, being born and living as a human, dying as a human, but also dying as God on the cross. Human so he could redeem humanity, sinless so he could redeem sinful people, and God's son so we can become God's children. One church leader put it this way, If the virgin birth is untrue, then the story of Jesus changes greatly. We would have a sexually promiscuous young woman lying about God's miraculous hand in the birth of her son, raising that son to declare he was God and then joining his religion. But if Mary is nothing more than a skillful con artist, then neither she nor her son Jesus should be trusted. This is not... God inside a human, like a letter inside an envelope. It is not God and humanity, the divine and human, inside one person, like two people inside a pantomime horse. But what we have is Jesus Christ, fully God and fully human, showing humanity what God is like, but also living a human life to enable humanity to come back to God. And what difference does that make? 
It makes all the difference in this world and all the difference in the next. Because as we come this morning to receive the bread and the wine, we come to a God who is not distant or remote. We come to a God who is not ignorant of the life that you and I live. We come to a God who cannot sympathize with all the things that we go through as a part of being a human. Whether it be a child, whether it be a toddler, whether it be a baby, whether it be as a teenager, whether it be as an adult. God himself has felt what we feel. In the words of that Graham Kendrick song from 20, 30 years ago, he has felt what we feel. He's walked where we walk. He's touched what we touch. As we come this morning and take bread and wine, tangible reminders of his love and commitment and sacrifice to every single human being on this planet that has ever lived, we come to a God who is close, who yet is bigger than our understanding, but who in Jesus has come near, who has felt what we feel, who has walked where we walk, who has touched what we touch. We come to a God who understands what we struggle with. And so we can come this morning to a God who understands what it's like to open the door of a cupboard and to have a mug fall out and to shatter into a thousand pieces. Who knows, Jesus maybe one day dropped a mug in his kitchen. He one day put a robe on and the equivalent of whatever yogurt was, probably humus or chickpea or something, spread all down Jesus' robe. And he thought, that's grim. <laughs> Who knows what words went through Jesus' head at that point. He has felt what we feel. He's touched what we touch. He's walked where we walk. Anything that you and I are going through this morning, Jesus knows about it. Whatever we're anxious about, whatever we're fearful of, whatever we're hopeful for, Jesus has felt what we feel. So we come this morning to a God who is far bigger than our understanding, but who is closer than we dare to imagine. Let's pray together.